Episode 300. Episode 300. Episode 300. I will do this another 297 times. No. Time for the drums. Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we made it to yet another arbitrary number, but still an important one, and one that requires another landmark and important interview. So we're here for episode 300 and part one of my conversation with the former professor of percussion at UNCG, creator and past president of the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy creator and former owner of C. Allen Publications, and more specifically to me, my grad school mentor for my master's and doctorate degrees, Court McLaren. But first off, I just want to say thanks. Thank you for listening all these years. Thank you for your kind words about the show. Wherever and whenever that has happened, it's all been great. Thank you for your comments about how the show is going and how it can be better, but just thank you. It's been a lot of fun doing the show, and I am still enjoying getting the chance to talk to so many folks in this world and to put together this podcast for you. It is truly a pleasure, and I look forward to keeping this going in the future. But let's go ahead and get to today's guest, Court McLaren. I don't know that I had a list of guests that I had always wanted to talk to for this podcast when I started it in 2016. But at some point, I had wanted to have my grad school mentor, Court McLaren, on the show. I'd always checked in with him on a semi-regular basis about doing the show, and he always begged off doing it. And that's fine. I just thought that maybe at some point, he'd come around to doing the show if I continued to ask him about it. Now, at this past year's National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy in May, which I talked about on a recent episode, I got a rare chance to have a long conversation during the conference with Court and Nathan Daughtry, just the three of us. As many of you know, Nathan Daughtry, now the owner of CLM Publications, multiple-time podcast guest, and a well-known and established composer and percussionist in his own right, is someone I've known practically as long as I've known Court because he and I did our master's and doctorates at the same time at UNCG under court's direction. But for some reason, after the three of us had this really good long conversation at NTPP, and knowing that episode 300 for my show was coming up, I had a feeling that it might be time to take another shot and try to get court on the show. And you have no idea how excited I was to receive that email back saying he was willing to be on the show. And so we did the interview. We spoke for three and a half hours. Since Court is retired, I set this interview up a bit differently than usual. We essentially stay within what I consider his three legacy items. Seattle Publications, his method book, the Book of Percussion Pedagogy, and the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy. From those starting points, we get into all manner of his background, his performance career, his teaching philosophy, and a lot else. 
And because, as I mentioned, we talked for as long as we did, we split this episode into two parts. So let's get to part one. And for the 300th time, we recorded this interview over Zoom on July 1st, 2022. And it begins right now. Wore you out or something like that. <laughs> I'll take it. I'm happy to have you. Well, it's good to be here. So, Court, I want to start with your percussion pedagogy book, um, which is kind of the first way that I, I mean, obviously, I was a student of yours at the time when I first was introduced to this. Tell me a little bit about the beginnings of the book, why you felt like you needed to write it. And how you kind of came up with your uh, philosophy. I've told this story before. The, the impetus was a telephone call that I got from a band director while teaching at UNCG. Mm-hmm. And the guy was, uh, I, I mean, I received lots of these kinds of calls. But that day, I don't know if I got up on the wrong side of the bed or the right side of the bed, maybe. Uh, and this guy wanted me to come do a clinic for his students. And I said, I'd be happy to. When do you want to schedule it? And and then I said, what would you like me to do in that clinic? Or, you know, what do you feel like your students need? And he said, well, I'd like you to talk about tambourine and triangle and maybe crash symbols and those kinds of things. And I said, okay. And so we made a, an agreement for the date and time and we hung up. And and I immediately went into sort of a semi-rage thinking that why in the heck can band directors not learn something as incredibly simple as how to play a triangle. It's not like you need orchestral experience to play grade two literature in a high school band or grade three or four or five, as far as that goes. Why, why are they so incredibly ignorant about that? And it was, you know, because like I said, I received those kinds of calls before. And we unfortunately fall back on the phrase uh, in the university environment of saying, well, band directors are all stupid. Well, they're not. They live within a certain environment that has lots of different demands on them, and they're, they're not stupid people at all. But in cases like this, it demonstrates a certain kind of ignorance, uh, probably more of an ignorance about where this was before the internet, because so th- these people couldn't go to the big first site and see how to play triangle. <laughs> right. Okay, that's 10 seconds, that took a long time. They didn't really have an idea of where to go to get that information. I, I came to the conclusion that the reason that, that they don't have that knowledge and they have a great fear of percussion because every instrument is seen as a separate entity. 
The right. timpani has this world of information. Snare drum has this world of information. Most of it that's out there is completely irrelevant to teaching young people. Okay. I said, well, okay. I was a band director for several years. What did I know about teaching clarinet, saxophone, trumpet? I actually didn't know a whole lot about brass because I had an assistant that was a brass player. <laughs> and I did mostly woodwinds and percussion. But nevertheless, I came to the conclusion that, you know, there, there are just a few things that you need to know as a non-clarinet player about teaching clarinet. You know, that's, that's articulation, that's uh, the reed, uh, breathing. I mean, wind playing is about 98% about breathing. It's about how to use the air. Uh, and that goes for woodwinds and brass. So we don't have that information, but we didn't, about percussion. The fundamentals of what it takes for a fifth grader and a doctoral student to play percussion. And we didn't have that, not only the information, we didn't, with, with the information comes a, a language, a vocabulary. I spent a good deal of time, a couple of years actually, coming up with a, a list of things that one would need to know to teach percussion at almost any level. And that's where the common elements approach came in. And I, I switched those elements around several times and thought through them because I wanted a hierarchical approach. If you start with this, then you go with that. If you start with that and you don't have this, you're going to have trouble and you're going to develop bad habits. So the posture, grip, striking motion, volume, sticking rolls came out of that from simplest to most complex. Now, those are hierarchical in terms of simple to complex, but some of them happen simultaneously. Right. More than one of those can happen simultaneously. I felt that if if band directors, if percussion teachers had that hierarchy to deal with, it would give students a vocabulary eventually to pretty much teach themselves. Junior high kids can learn those six words, and over time they can learn the concepts that are attached to that, each one of those, those vocabulary words. You'll find over time that I found this at the university. It was really intriguing to watch. Uh, as you know, we had a uh, a rep class every week, mm -hmm. Mondays at four o'clock, I believe, where students would play for each other, and initially students would critique. And over time, students, including freshmen, would start to use that vocabulary to critique their, their colleagues. So anyway, that's the basis of the percussion pedagogy. I think it's called the book of percussion pedagogy. I'm, I'm actually rewriting that right now. 
I'd like to say it would be out a year from now. We'll see how my retired bones <laughs> make that happen. Yeah. Uh, 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 and and Seattle will publish it. And I, I think Nathan would like to rename the book. Uh, and I'm I'm all for that as long as the the information is still within the title. Right. Uh, the common you mean the common elements approach portion, right? Yes, yes. And and I think the the outline within the book mm-hmm. will be a little bit different. Right now it takes each of the instruments and goes to do all six common elements. Right. For each instrument. Yeah. I think what I want to do, and I'll probably send a version of this to you for you to critique before I uh, finish it. Mm-hmm. I would like to take each of the common elements, mm-hmm. for example, grip, and go through all of the grips for mm-hmm. the instruments. So the idea of grip is a is a, is, a, is glued together for all of the instruments. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so this the, the common elements apply to every instrument, every basic, every instrument that a a uh, an average percussionist in middle school, high school, probably university will play or will have access to play. Right. Uh, so you have this vocabulary for every instrument. It's not like well, triangle doesn't have posture. And it doesn't have grip. Well, it has all six of those. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm, I'm thinking about changing that approach. Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested since you're familiar with with the ideas. You see, the problem is we're still taking instruments separately, right? Instead of wait a minute, all the instruments have these six things. Now, there's quite a bit of information attached to each one of those six things. Right. Uh, More information than what you'll ever deal with in in a school situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nevertheless, it's a starting place. Anyway, the -hmm. purpose of the book was to give a vocabulary and means of using that vocabulary to anybody who wants to use it. It's a hard sell, Pete. Uh, The common elements approach is a hard sell, but because it does require one to adopt a methodology. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take personality. Everybody's going to teach differently. Right. But it's a hard sell for somebody who hasn't used a a concrete methodology before. We're, what, 25 years later, and I think my first version of that book, which was unpublished, came out in 1992. So it's been a long time. And that was just used at this university for yeah. uh, the students in the methods class. Eventually, I found that method incredibly useful for working with every age of university student. You got a problem, Pete? You got a problem playing that phrase? Okay, let's go backwards. Mm-hmm. Is it is it a is it a posture problem? 
Is it a grip issue that's keeping you from playing that? And so and on down the line. Right. And we often solve lots of problems that way. Instead of just beating the instrument to death and trying to figure out what you could change, maybe over time. Right. Anyway, that's a long-winded approach to the pedagogy book. Yeah. But you ask. I'd ask. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> well, one of the things that I'm going to assume was different from what may have been before is that you were specifically relating each of these items and common, common elements approach to things that a wind player would already know, like articulate right. breathing. Like you had very, you would, you would have lines like, like this is related to this, this is related to this. And I assume that was intentional. Absolutely. A mature percussionist, the say university teachers been teaching a while might look at those. Okay. Posture is posture for percussion, for clarinet players, for trumpet players, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Might look at that and have no interest or any clue that those relate. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's where the hard shell comes in. Yeah. So articulation is sticking. Mm-hmm. Breathing is volume. Breathe, or, well, volume is volume, but breathing uh, creates a certain kind of volume through a wind instrument, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I said articulation is sticking. Yeah. Okay. The band directors already have the information. They just need to learn how to relate it from teaching clarinet to teaching percussion. It's one word, articulation. Oh, sticking. You mean they have to use both sticks? <laughs> Sometimes those sticks can get messed up and, and cause all kinds of problems. Um, so it's really that easy if you let it take, come into your, your psyche and your methodology. It's quite easy. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. That that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know when you were when you were putting this together, I assumed that you had some. Did you use other um, pedagogy books like when you were studying, or yeah. what, what was what was kind of around? Was the was Cook's book around at that point? Mm-hmm. I feel like it came out around the same time, right? Or other- I think it may have come out somewhere around at that same. I bought every uh, class percussion method, what am I trying to say, percussion methods class book Mm -hmm. on the market at that time. And some of them had gone out of print. Some of them I had purchased when I was a a student, you know, coming through the system. And I I would walk into a music store and see a book there that I – I thought was interesting, and I've always been interested in the teaching aspect. So I'd go into a, a music store, and there would be uh, Al Payson's book on teaching percussion in the schools. Okay, mm-hmm. so I had those. Although at the time I started working on on my book, they were out of print. I went through every one of those books and analyzed them in terms of. How many pages do they spend on snare drum? 
how many pages they spend on triangle. And and not only how many pages, but what was the order? But there were in none of those books was there ever, ever any kind of methodology, any kind of sequence in all of them, every one of them leading up to to Gary's book, snare drum by a huge margin got the most space. Yeah. Because, you know, until the late 70s, we were a snare drum world. And, and I think in many cases, we're still a snare drum world. We still, we still consider snare drum as the basis of percussion. I don't, I don't feel that anymore. I, I, I think we've gone way, way beyond that. Uh, but we still have our, our uh, tentacles attached to it. Yeah. You know, like a huge octopus that that grasps that con- or the idea of playing snare drum as our fundamental uh, <clears throat> type of playing and. I mean, it relates to all the other instruments, but it's not the most important instrument. Right. Well, I'm going to catch hell from that, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's that's great. I, you know, what you related to, um, actually, and I hadn't even thought about this again, but when you talked about the met, uh, no, the rep class. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that I remember those things being structured, as you said, the one added thing is that you would often do a almost like a summation uh, thing after someone's. So you would allow the students to critique. And you. I remember I want you to talk a little bit about kind of the specific rules you had for the critiques. And then you would do kind of like a like a, a finishing salvo. And then we would go to the next person. I've been away from it long enough that I don't remember some of those details. Hmm. But uh, if there was a rule for the students to use, didn't apply to me. <laughs> but uh, it was to first be firm, make sure that you're describing your critique well, and use a vocabulary to do that. But most importantly is to be kind when you do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and most students, I think, accepted that. Uh, rarely did I, when I did summation, this would have been after you were gone, probably, Pete. Okay. I remember one student, he, 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 did, he didn't practice much at all. And when he did practice... I think he had all kinds of behavioral issues that prevented him from practicing correctly. Whatever his correct was. Sure. You know, there's not a single correct way of, of practicing. And he, he got up there and played and just just butchered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the students who critiqued him were very kind, and, but they were right on spot. Mm-hmm. But one thing they didn't say which I had to say was you either didn't practice or you don't know how to practice, but your performance was awful. Uh, and I was pretty harsh about it. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a teacher has to be able to criticize a student without belittling them. Right. Unfortunately, I wasn't that kind with this particular student. Uh, well, that could have been also just you might have just been frustrated working with the student by at that point, <laughs> and that might have come out. Well, it could, it could have. It could have. If you can't play a piece well, then come to the teacher and say, I can't play it well. I tried and I need extra help. And this guy was arrogant enough that he was, he, he, by the way, he was excellent with using the vocabulary and critiquing other students. But uh, there was always something wrong with his ability. Anyway, what were, the question was, did I have any rules for those rep classes? Yeah. Those rep classes, uh, I found to be incredibly valuable because rep means repertoire. If a freshman comes in and plays certain pieces, the next year's freshman might play some of those same pieces. And the next year's freshman might play some of those. They were gradually, you know, filtered in and out over years, some of them. I gave up the Mitchell Peters pieces because I thought there was, there was better literature uh, that approached the instrument uh, as it was being played at the time, and better music. Those students who came in as a freshman are going to hear those pieces performed, the same pieces performed over and over and over and over and over. So they should graduate with a pretty good knowledge, if they paid attention, mm-hmm. of repertoire, at least for that time and space. <laughs> At that university, they should should have a pretty good sense of of repertoire. And I found that really valuable. And it wasn't just that, though. It was also that you were allowing them to to be able to give their feedback in and have a chance to practice doing that, too. Yes, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it would be interesting to... uh, to have done some some studies on students uh, maybe a year out mm-hmm. after they graduated, whether they went to graduate school or if they started teaching, say, um, how many of these pieces did you play? Or give me a list of the pieces that you played. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be interesting if they actually remembered them. <laughs> sure. So anyway... Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not. Sh- I, I, I'm not sure how other teachers use repertoire class. Some some use it as a sort of a master class, and, and we did that occasionally too. Yeah. Uh, you know, talk about the various issues of percussion performance, but it was mostly based on listen and critique the repertoire. When I've worked with colleagues um, here at Mizzou, actually, it's it's become they've done more with with kind of following this method of allowing for feedback. And sometimes they'll, it'll be written feedback. So they'll like give slips of paper and then those will go to the student. And sometimes it'll be kind of a direct feedback. Like, you know, like you had set up. So it's kind of gone in in some different. You know, that's interesting, Pete, because 
I don't know if we ever did it written or not, but my opinion is that if you can't verbalize what you're doing, then you probably can't teach very well. And, and, and if you can't verbalize to your colleague, then you're just frightened about your knowledge or your ability to say it in a way that's helpful rather than, you know, critical. I, I think it's important to verbalize. I always found it interesting with doctoral students. Well, we did it with anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, when we went to timpani, mm -hmm. we started working on timpani. Yeah. One of the first things that I would do is okay, I'm a sixth grader, tell me where to strike the instrument. And I would get mountains of verbal garbage about that simple, simple little thing about where to strike the instrument. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, you know, it's, 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 if you take a dollar bill and put it across, you know, it's going to rim, that's where you hit it. Mm -hmm. If you... You know, it's two inches out, or it's an inch and three quarters. It's an inch and seven eighths in. Somebody had told them that, or they had read it somewhere. Uh, so something so simple ought to be uh, based on where the best sound is, and how do you achieve? How do you get them to decide where the best sound is? Mm -hmm. So I, I found that very interesting. That number one. Most students couldn't tell you where the best place was or figure out how to get to the best place in, in sixth grade words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. And maybe no words. How do you get me as a sixth grader to understand where the best sound is without saying a word? And it's incredibly easy. If you recall, I always ask you questions during lessons. Oh, I remember. And I still have vivid memories of the first lesson uh, in Masters when you're like, so what do you think? What do you mean, what do I think? You're the teacher. You're, you're the like, teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and I, like, I remember that being a major shift just in my own I, – I understood what you were doing, Not maybe not that first lesson, but I, 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 I quickly caught on to what you were – what you were making me do. Well, it, and that some students just freeze. In fact, most, most graduate students freeze yeah. when they're asked that question because they're looking for what the professor wants to hear instead of, well, what do you, what do you think? Give me words that describes your playing. If you can't do that for yourself, you sure as heck ain't going to be able to do it with a freshman. Verbalizing what you know and what you don't know. And Asa Woodruff said in his writing about concept development, he said, you can't verbalize concepts. Uh, I don't want to get into concept development, but there are certain aspects of intellectual development that you can't verbalize. And that's why we're in music because we can't verbalize certain things. But, but you know, techniques and that sort of thing, 
uh, th- that's not in that purview of, of you can't verbalize it. And it's important for people who want to be good teachers to use their mouth and, and make mistakes just like they do as a player. Oh, so a couple of you, you again, you're, you're making me think of, of various things here, but um, one is that I was thinking with the with the writing, I, I think some of where that I think sometimes students need because I see this with uh, teaching on Zoom, actually, over those last couple of years is that yeah. sometimes the students need a chance to write it out and then they're ready to talk. Um, so sometimes they need to step um, kind of in to just kind of help. And, and then they're ready. Or maybe they need to talk first and then write it out. Well, yeah. It's probably different for different people. Right. You, what you made me think of, though, something I was going to ask you anyway, but you always had a very clear idea of musicianship. And I, I wanted to know more about where that came from for you. Um, because every time I remember thinking about if I got really good, high praise from you, I felt like I had, and I, I wasn't necessarily like going for, I, well, maybe I was going for that because you were, I was one of your students, but I still remember y- you had this kind of idea of really developing the student's musicianship and having kind of a clear idea about it. Stop me if I get off here. Okay. Let's go back to, Court McLaren's training. Sure. Okay, I started playing snare drum in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. I cannot remember learning anything about music until maybe high school. I just don't remember anything. I'm sure I learned something, but it would only have been on snare drum at that time. This was back in the dark ages. I graduated high school, pretty good high school band. I hated marching band because it hurt back in those days. <laughs> uh, More so than now, <laughs> I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I didn't like to sweat in those wool uniforms. So I started at a junior college. If I hadn't started at that junior college, I wouldn't be here today. It was an excellent program. I mean, it was, man, I... And this is in Kansas, right? This is in Hutchinson, Kansas. I grew up in Ulysses, Kansas, way out way out in the west, mm-hmm. near the Colorado border. And there were lots of really good western Kansas bands at that time. Big bands, really great bands. I started junior college, so... And I was a music major. I had no idea what that meant. You know, when you're, I don't know if you did, but many people, at least back in those days, you had to have a meeting with the high school counselor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and that person is supposed to tell you your future. Uh, you know, well, according to your records, uh, you, sh- you ought to do this. You, you're going to be a, a neurosurgeon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I went into my meeting. I was not a good student. Uh, and the guy looked at the records and he, he said, well, uh, looked like he got an occasional B in English. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to tell me not to go to college. Don't go to college. You're not going to make it. And I just, I looked at him in the eyes and, and I said, I'm going to be a musician. And I walked out. So I go to junior college and it was very uh, accepting place. Made lifelong friends there. Uh, it was a great program. Got introduced to some of the world's best composers, etc., etc., etc. My percussion teacher was a high school guy that would come in and teach adjunct. And we're still operating in the world of snare drum. Right. And I couldn't, I couldn't really read. I could name, but I really couldn't read Pitt's music. And I wasn't unlike much of the world uh, at that time. So I end junior college, and I still can't read very well because there was, other than taking a lesson once a week and playing out of a beginner method book, I didn't have to read. And that reading, you know, the theory that you take doesn't help you learn how to read. <laughs> now, let's go 50 years forward. Okay. I learned that I'm ADHD. Oh, that explains a lot about <laughs> reading and all kinds of things that I've experienced in life and in a career. It really explains a lot. If I had known that, I probably could have taken some remedial, remedial training to help me learn to read better. It wasn't a problem of reading snare drum. It was a problem of reading pitch music, bass clef, treble clef. Okay. So here I am, two years of school gone, and I still can't really play well. Although, given the rest of the students, I was the one that was asked to do the musicals and the, you know, let's go play with the choir and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So I go to, uh, I transfer to a four-year college and the percussion teacher is a high school guy that is a snare drum player. <laughs> okay. So here I am three years out of high school and I still can't read. And, and now during that year, I went to another university and studied timpani with temp the timpanist, the Wichita Symphony. Well, I didn't learn how to read there either. Uh, you can't see that I learned a whole lot about timpani. So, okay. So at the end of that third year, uh, I transferred to another four-year school. It's Wichita State. Mm -hmm. So now I'm studying with a real percussionist. Was that J.C.? That was J.C. Combs. Yeah. That was like putting me on a, a battleship and saying, jump over and I hope you can swim. I remember at a rep class there at some point, he had me playing the Creston Concerto, which I was in no way able to play. <laughs> okay. And... And I stopped halfway through the first movement, and I said, no, I, I can't do this. I, I, 
I couldn't read, so I couldn't look down and then look up and find my place. I couldn't memorize because I didn't know how to practice. Right. <laughs> so I should have been playing Mary Had a Little Lamb <laughs> with one mallet Yeah. Uh, at that point. So here I am. I'm ready to graduate from, and I'm doing a senior recital. And, and I, I practiced really hard and played a concerto there and some other stuff. Yeah. But one thing that I always loved doing, and I, and I made a point of doing it a lot, I went to other rehearsals. Uh, the junior college I went to had a, had a world-class jazz ensemble. And I wasn't good enough to play in that at least the main drum set parts. But I went there every one of their rehearsals twice a week for two years and watched them rehearse. And it's amazing what you can kind of internalize in terms of musicianship. And I don't know why I found myself doing this. I went to choir rehearsals also. Uh, and, and I was constantly asking myself, hmm, I wonder if that's the way I would do it. Mm -hmm. So I started to get a sense of musicianship. Then, uh, you know, life happened. I went on to teach the public schools. Musicianship was always at the forefront. I always felt, even though I didn't feel great as a percussionist at the time, I felt good about musicianship. And I was able to verbalize, what do I want and how do I get it? I don't think I can do that, but <laughs> I can ask somebody else to get it. I don't know if this is a little bit weird or not, but where did I get a sense of musicianship that I was able to use in a teaching situation? Well, that comes from observing. It comes from making your own decisions. This even goes back to the common elements approach and being able to analyze what we do and verbalize it. When I was a kid, starting at age 12, I worked at a swimming pool. At about age 14, I think, and all through high school, you know, I dumped the trash and cleaned the toilets and I was a lifeguard. And I taught swimming lessons. And the swimming lessons there were divided into parts, sequential parts. The first thing was with a little beginner who can't stand in three feet of water because they'll drown, <laughs> was a prone float. Mm -hmm. And then you add the flutter kick. And then you add the arms underwater doing the, whatever the, they call it. Then you turn over on your back. And you go to another teacher and learn how to do that. We're talking about fundamental survival in the water. Right. Okay. Getting to the point where you can do strokes mm -hmm. uh, in another class later on. When I became a lifeguard, I was taught to keep my head moving. There was a microphone on the lifeguard stand, well, on one of the lifeguard stand, that if you needed to ask for help or if you needed to reprimand somebody, you'd use the microphone and the whistle 
and scream at him over the loudspeakers. <laughs> which, was, <laughs> which was kind of fun. The, the, the manager of the swimming pool taught me a lot about teaching and about noticing and observation. If I had my, if he was watching me, if my head was not in constant motion, he would get on the loudspeaker and reprimand me. He called me Cordy. Cordy, keep your head moving. And, you know, in, 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 in private sessions, he said, you not only need to keep your head moving, but you need to observe the face on the swimmer as it moves by. You need to observe the arms and the feet to see if that person's in trouble. And you need to see that instantly. So after many, many years of that kind of training, I sort of think that transferred into observing and using my ears in music. Mm. But this is real. I, I, I'm seeing like you're giving me the full package, which so I appreciate that. Yeah. Musicianship is an issue of detail. Mm-hmm. All those musical things. You know, one thing, one criticism some people have of the common elements approach is, well, what about musicianship? Uh, in fact, at one of uh, one of the early NCPPs at UNCG, mm-hmm. I gave a little presentation on common elements. A man said, well, what about musicianship when I finished? And Laura Franklin stood up and said, without these fundamentals, you can't make music. <laughs> so... Uh, it's, it's, it's seeing the detail in music. Now, that has, that has its own set of vocabulary. Right. Phrasing. Phrasing is breathing, using the breath, changing dynamics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I studied it at length and, and used this in my teaching, a methodology called, the program was called MMCP. Manhattanville Music Curriculum Project. And that project identified five elements of all music. All music has these five things. And each one of those five things has a ton of stuff under each one of them. That's musicianship. And I spent a lot of time studying that and and writing curriculum, trying to think about that when I when I taught. By the time I got to the university, it was sort of an insightful thing more than something that I wrote down and tried to analyze all the time. But that that kind of explains my. It's I guess the common elements grew out of that also. When when was that? When did you do all that work with the MMCP? It started in, in uh, uh, undergraduate school. Okay. I had an interest in those kinds of things. Uh, I had an interest in uh, behavioral technology, uh, behavior modification. Uh, I took special projects to learn about. Because you, you didn't learn about them in coursework. Mm-hmm. So most of that stuff was something outside of the classroom that I chose to 
to pursue. Coming to think about it, you made me think that all this stuff sort of connects. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. The other thing I remember, and I don't remember, this might have been, I think, with your um, your PhD research. Um, but I remember being in your office and, and seeing um, the Stanislavski, one of his books for actors. I knew of that book because at the time in the 90s, there was a show that was very popular on cable called Inside the Actor Studio, and that was based yeah. out of – and so I remember being like, why do you have this book? Yeah. So how did you get that – how did you even get connected to that information? Well, my dissertation, as you know, is uh, based on how we react to marimba performance the physical movements a performer makes yeah. in terms of good, bad. All right. Is that, is that performance good? Is that performance bad? Um, and it was, it was not an experimental study. It was really a descriptive study, mm-hmm. but in order to understand what was going on in the, in the world and mostly the world of music, I accessed dozens of sources that dealt with movement. Uh, not, not necessarily movement in the sense of, well, that, gi- that gives you the impression of a good performance. It's just, how do we deal with movement in music, in dance, mm-hmm. in acting, uh, that makes it a better experience? So you have more control over your body and therefore, you have control of the audience. Uh, another one that I found incredibly interesting was, uh, what's his name, Rudolf Leben? And he developed uh, what's called Leben notation, where you can uh, chart, draw, whatever it is, every movement a body makes in terms of its direction, strength. I don't think that's the correct term. I know what you mean, though, yeah. Not very many people, well, some of the great choreographers, I think, still may use that notation. It's pretty complicated. But the fact that that he took the time to observe <laughs> everything about your body and and be able to notate it, said, well, I mean, I didn't want to do that for my dissertation, but just the fact that it could be done means that we could videotape a performance, a marimba performance, a snare drum, timpani, and we could notate every aspect of the body in terms of its efficiency. Why don't you do that, Pete? Oh, that's now I have to do that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be incredibly interesting to uh, to well to take those performances that we call good and graph them using um, movement notation? Hmm. Sounds interesting. It sounds interesting. 
Yeah, that's for somebody else to do. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you're, I, I'm, I was leaning towards getting to this, but I remember, and I may have been, you may have laid, I don't, I wonder if you've laid this out for us when I was in grad school, but I remember seeing it at NCPP where you put up like this four levels of um, musical performance or something like, and it went something like, like level one was like what's on the page, basically like notes, dynamics, all that stuff. And then the second level was adding in the interpretation, I think. Then the third level was, I try to remember the third level of being um, mastery. And then the fourth was manipulation. It sort of sounds familiar. I got to go back and check my notes and see. Well, it was... See what I said. <laughs> it was. It was well. Part of the reason it was fascinating is because you said like the way that you were. You had figured out, you know, what it was kind of like. Well, what makes a whether how well you know something or what makes for it being great. And you basically said the best level was being able to perform whatever you're doing at literally in any style, in any speed. Like you had, you could, you could manipulate whatever you had learned to the point that you could make it completely different. But that meant that you had, you knew, you understood every aspect of it. I kind of remember that now. And I think that might have been in a presentation on percussion ensemble. That sounds right. uh, That, in my opinion, most percussion ensemble performances never get past that first level of reading the notes and and probably playing the the dynamics mm-hmm. but certainly not phrasing certainly not there's a there's a psychological principle called pushdown principle mm-hmm. yeah and uh, the, the the better you learn something it's pushed down in your your whatever it is, your brain and and your body. And the further it's pushed down, I hope I'm representing this correctly, the further it's pushed down, which means you have to go through different levels of learning it mm-hmm. in order to get it pushed down, then you're almost guaranteed of a great performance. If you haven't pushed it down further enough, far enough, um, and this is this is solo performance, percussion ensemble, anything you do, if you haven't pushed it down far enough uh, in performance, especially in solo performance, and you have that half a millisecond of fear that comes across your head, you're going to fail. It's going to be like a bomb going off. Uh, That doesn't happen when you really push things down. Like into your body so that you free up the, you would, I think you say it would be pushed down so that your mind would be free to move into the next level. Yes. And and to recover and to, and to react. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an incredible thing to experience. I never experienced that until I was, 
oh, I don't know, I did a faculty recital once, and and I prepared differently for it. And uh, it was it was amazing. It was just amazing to finish a performance and not really know what you did. <laughs> I mean, you know, you did a good job because you prepared, mm-hmm. but uh, you sometimes you finish your performance and you are aware of every note that you played, and you're not really too sure whether they were phrasing. Uh, like you said, th- th- that last part of being able to manipulate, yeah, that—that's what makes the difference between a great performance. Going back to musician, the yeah. difference musicianship. There's difference between a great performance and an average performance. Um, orchestras often give average performances. The players are so great; they can read the notes. You know, they can read the notes and they're there and the dynamics are there. Uh, But you look at their faces and they're bored to death and a conductor cannot manipulate a piece unless that piece has been rehearsed to the point where they're ready to manipulate it. Right. That was always fun for me as a conductor to get to that point where man, I can do whatever I want with this piece because <laughs> it's been pushed down to the point, you know, and I'm sure the students thought, oh, my God, we're going to rehearse that again? Well, yeah, we are, but let's do something different. Let's, let's make it better so that we can, we can do whatever we want, you know? And if I get the itch to do it faster or slower or louder, give me the, the liberty to do that. That's that's when conducting is really fun. Yeah, one of the my kind of my first memories of kind of of feeling like this was was actually my second semester when we did uh, diabolic variations, which is still one of my favorite yeah ensemble pieces. And I remember because because I had heard, I got to hear it like at a later point, a group played it at PASIC and it didn't have the same. They had I don't know if they hadn't gotten far in or if just the musicianship level. Anyway, but I remember that you were finding from that music that is so dense. Yeah. Um, with so many lines going. I remember that you, there were ways that you found and I don't know, I'm I'm curious, like when you would work that extensively on a piece, were you realizing that you would find other things in there that you're like, oh, that line needs to come out. Um and you would just kind of experiment in class, or did you have kind of a pre, a, like an idea of what that you wanted it to sound like? Well, both. Okay. Uh, I didn't do a great deal of score study, uh, other than being able to wave my arms appropriately. Mm-hmm. But the real creative part of the rehearsal was when my ears were freed up to hear things that uh, that would make it a better piece. Yeah. Because you can take any piece, that piece, that piece is very vertical. Yeah. Uh, you can take any piece and just play those notes and you hope, you know, that the, the, the notes within the chords are heard, but 
most of the time they're not because all the people hear is the melody. But being able to dissect that and really bring out the essence of what the music says it wants to say, uh, for me, that, that happened in rehearsal. I hate to admit that, but it, it did. Which I, I guess that goes back to where did my musicianship come from? Mm-hmm. You know, bottom line is, I don't know. It, it, it's there and I really enjoy it. <laughs> I, I, I think about it. Uh, I, with my own playing and or with whenever I work with groups is just is that is when it can get to that or close to that level um but also that like if you as you're saying when you get to play it enough and you start to figure out what other lines are there to make it better it's pretty great like i i really enjoy getting to those moments <laughs> You know, there's a there's a discussion, as well you know, about uh, the percussion orchestra or, you know, the large ensemble with lots of keyboards in it. Some people hate that group uh, and some people love it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Only in that kind of setting is it possible, as I can argue with myself about this, mm-hmm. I'm going to say it anyway, only in that setting where you have a caliber of music can you dig deep into those inside parts and and separate them to make a better musical experience. You have to have a certain quality of music in order to for that to happen, in order for a conductor or, or a performer to dig deeper into, I remember somebody once, the Mitchell Peters Yellow After the Rain, and they were demonstrating, I want you to hear this, this performance by this student, and it's so incredibly wonderful. And the student played it well, but it was still not a good piece of music. <laughs> you can work on that for months, and it's still going to be not a good piece of music. It's a piece for teaching certain techniques and some musicianship. But you, you can't compare that piece or the other kinds of pieces like that to, to something that has more depth. Yeah. But you don't know the depth in something until you start ripping it apart. Right. Now, you know, I think a musician or a conductor has to accept the notion you go out and do an honor group mm-hmm. or you're doing an ensemble at a school and working with them. It didn't, that isn't going to happen. Right. You're going to have the vertical sound of diabolic variations, period. Well, this leads, though, this is actually a good transition into the publishing company because, if I'm not mistaken, one of the motivations was – a dissatisfaction with lit, right? Yeah. This would have been around the same time that all this other stuff was rolling around in my brain. (laughs) The major publishers that were publishing, you know, school band literature and that sort of thing, there were a couple of publishers that were publishing only 
percussion literature, but that was ancient. That was based on a, a snare drum ancient approach to to percussion. Uh, they had not caught up to the percussion revolution that started in the early 80s and built into the 90s yep. and into the 2000s. Um, and I was just really having the percussion program uh, was growing, and but the literature to express that growth was not growing fast enough. In terms of the lit that you were most likely playing, I would assume it's, is it much else other than what OU Press was doing? No. No, there wasn't much else. Now, somebody else is going to say, they can name half a dozen pieces were written in the 1930s and 40s. And, sure. you know, and I, I say, mm, to that. <laughs> um, but that's just a difference of experience. So I started Sea Island Publications, and one of the first composers in the catalog was David Long. Mm -hmm. And David had sent out a photocopied copy of a, an ad trying to sell his percussion ensembles. And they were good, they were different from what was on the market uh, and different from OU Press to some extent, although they had the same qualities to them. But they weren't as difficult. So I just called David and I said, David, I'm starting this publishing company. Would you like for me to publish those pieces? And he, he thought about it for about 10 seconds and said, let's do it. Uh, the, the next early composer in the catalog was David Gillingham. Who was already pretty well known at that point, right? He was known for maybe stained glass. Well, he, like Heroes Lost and Fallen was like well, band, yes, right, band lit, yeah. He was just well, he was just starting his to be well known in the band world, yeah. And he wrote a piece before he wrote Stained Glass, I believe, called Pascal Dances, mm -hmm. yeah. And that was being published by a publishing house in St. Louis. And they were charging a fortune for it. <clears throat> and it was in manuscript. Uh, I mean, the finale software had not appeared yet in the world. There was something called professional composer uh, at that time, but it was printed out on dot matrix printers. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, woo! Yeah. Uh, in fact, OU Press had some of their earlier pieces printed on, on that, that way. Yeah. So uh, I called David and I said, man, do you know that you've got this piece, uh, Pascal Dances, that they're charging a fortune for? And, and, and he, he said, I know it. I just can't. Find it. I said, well, why don't you see if you can get that back from them and I'll publish all your music going forward. And, uh, and that, that was incredible for David because he now had somebody who would publish all of his music, uh, band, chamber music, orchestra, percussion ensemble. Um, and then the company just gradually grew, gradually grew until we started 
publishing other things other than just percussion and just band. I mean, now that's the core of the publishing company. Nathan's done an incredibly good job of keeping everything going. Yeah. Through the pandemic. And I mean, that unfortunate for him. I, I walked out on January 1st, 2020. Yeah. Two months later, the pandemic hits. <laughs> anyway, that was the, the, the early, that was how C. Allen started. I had no idea what I was doing. And this, no, you're I, just like, you're basically just in your basement, right? Just trying, just, are you like, like, got in all the printing materials, like all, like doing everything from there, right? I had a, an ancient photocopy machine mm -hmm. that couldn't do anything that even a desktop printer can do today. Yeah. Uh, so it was a tedious process. I knew nothing about copyright. Uh, I didn't know how to market, uh, so it was it was a, a incredibly exciting adventure that that worked out. And I think one thing that helped the company was that we were always honest with people. You know, if somebody found a mistake, we'd fix it. We treated our, our composers well, I think. And now that I don't know how many composers are in the catalog, but quite a, quite a lot. And I've noticed that Nathan's been adding younger composers uh, last couple of years. So that's how it all started. And eventually we moved out of my bedroom to uh, an, an office space in downtown Greensboro. Mm -hmm. and that was a nine-story building. And we went, we had one, two three different offices in that building. When we outgrew one space, we moved into another space and thought, well, that'll last a couple of years. Well, six months later, we're, we're outgrowing that space until we finally took, out, took over an, almost a, an entire floor. And then we moved to where the, where the company is now, we moved to a warehouse building. Yeah. We were there quite a while, and that worked out pretty well until the, the owner came in after several years, and he walked in my office with this lady, and he says, Court, I want you to meet so-and-so. She just bought the building, and you're going to have to move it out. <laughs> so that's how we got to where, where Nathan keeps the company now. Right. That was a, a quite an adventure in terms of selecting literature. And you were, because you were willing to turn people down. Um, oh, yeah. And also turning down works by composers who already had stuff in your catalog. That's true. David Long told me many years ago, he said, you know, Court, not everything a composer writes should be heard. Right. And that kind of gave me license to say, oh, okay, yeah, that's true. He said, sometimes we write just to experiment. The problem with many of the younger composers today is they think that everything they write is worthy of publication, and, and it's just not. Even a great composer doesn't write every piece at a great level. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to talk to them and say, you know, uh, Bob, I, I don't, I don't think you want this piece out there. Well, why not? I think it's the best piece I've ever written. Well, it's not. <laughs> and, 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 and you better have a pretty good sense of musicianship in order to express that to a composer. Yeah. And it, I never did get used to that. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's tough to get it back on your own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At what point did you, when you were, when you, when it was starting out, did you realize that um, either like, oh, this is getting to be bigger than something I can even handle on my own when it just may have been like, you may have just thought of it as a side project and not something that was going to kind of become its own thing. Well, when I was leaving the university and spending every night preparing orders, mm. it didn't take long to figure out that this, this isn't going to work. Uh, I can't do this. So over, over time, I had to start hiring people. You know, and, and that was a scary thing because you don't want to hire somebody and then not be able to pay them. Right. Uh, I never did get used to that feeling. But it, it was just when the when the workload was so extreme and I I didn't want the work at the university to suffer. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure but what it did to some extent because I'd go into work tired from being up late the night before having to get up early uh to attend to company business. Uh and then throughout the day it would be weighing on my brain about certain things. You know, I heard today that uh a high school band did an illegal arrangement of a piece and I've got to act on that now right but I've got to teach all day (laughs) Uh, so that was when we started hiring people to come in and and help out and work and a lot of those people were students yeah I was one of them (laughs) yeah yeah and a couple of those people had to fire over time, I don't think you were one of those. No, I left before you could fire me. I, I... <laughs> so I made it easy for you. <laughs> I was not born to be a businessman. I learned a lot about it, and there were certain aspects in terms of making literature available to pretty much the planet mm-hmm. that were exciting. I loved working with composers. Most of them. I was born to be a teacher. Yep. And, and you notice I didn't say a performer. Performing was, was something that I did in order to learn more about being a musician. Mm. It wasn't something that I did because I wanted my ego to be puffed up. And you go back to your original question about musicianship. Mm-hmm. Boy, I learned so much about teaching through my own performance. Mm-hmm. 
because uh, since I wasn't that great a reader, I had to woodshed things in a way that allowed me to push things down to the point where I could give a good performance. Mm -hmm. So I, I was born to be a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't want to be an average teacher. I, I can't imagine just being an average teacher. I shouldn't say that about myself. I never felt average. No. Um, anyway. It's interesting. The, the performing thing is, is kind of, I was something I did want to ask about because I remember, because I basically got, I saw one performance of you when I first started my master's, you had done the last movement. It was like the premiere of the long marimba concerto. Oh. <laughs> a band. Yeah. And Laura played the first movement and Nathan played the second movement and you played the third. And I thought, I thought you did great. I was really, I thought it was great. I thought everyone did a great job. And I remember I was like, Oh, I was, I was, it was great to see you. I enjoyed watching you play. And, and you were like, yeah, I think that's going to be it. <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't know if if that was because I don't know if that were you having I know you've you've like were you having any hand issues at this point or physical or something or was it just like you did the time was just not going to make it worth it for you to I I never felt like I had the time to practice mm. appropriately because with teaching applied lessons doing percussion ensembles overseeing graduate students, which I took seriously. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, um, I and and doing the publishing company. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I had time to devote to practice. I did a maybe it was a recital before you got here that I felt really good about. Uh, there was a point four or five years after I went to Greensboro or came to Greensboro, I'd been playing with the symphony. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always thought, I played in the, in the Oklahoma City Symphony before I came here, played a lot in that symphony, and I came here and was principal percussionist, and I, I didn't like it at all. Mm. I, it, just, it just wasn't something that was satisfying to me. So I left the symphony after three years, and I started to focus on the marimba. And one thing that helped was... Randy Kohlberg, the trombone teacher, and I yeah. started the Rococo duet. Now, what a strange pairing, trombone and marimba. And that's before the five-octave instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, and we took that out on the road quite a lot, that duet. And talk about improving my reading and my playing and confidence. Yeah. Uh, that was that was key to that, to, to, to my own development. And after that point, I found practice incredibly stimulating. Now, keep in mind that I didn't know at that time that I was ADHD. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one thing they say about ADHD is attention, HD, attention, Deficit hyperactivity disorder. Mm -hmm. Okay, well that's that's wrong. There's no attention deficit. 
we pay attention to everything. Every cricket that creaks and every pen that drops, we hear it all. We see it all. Uh, so it's a matter of being able to filter <laughs> uh, those things out. And once I was able to practice uh, and get to the point where I feel great, that was a, a really satisfying experience. I wonder if I could have gotten to that point earlier if I'd been on medication. Hmm. You know, ADHD medication. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I could I could for, for sure see why I, I couldn't imagine you as a as like an orchestral player or in finding that that just doesn't seem like what would make you happy. No, never did. Yeah. Now, at, 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 in, uh, in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, I took a job after two years of residency at, at OU at Southwestern Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. And that was about 70 miles from Oklahoma City. So I was driving into Oklahoma City three to four times a week to play with the orchestra, rehearse and play. That was really exciting because I was getting paid pretty well. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> I was more than willing to play in the orchestra. It didn't mm-hmm. pay as much in Greensboro. I was also playing with a, uh, the last year there. See, that would have been 82, I was playing with a group called Country Light, L-I-T-E. Okay. Uh, it was a Hammond B3 organ. Mm-hmm. The music therapy teacher played that. And a graduate student played guitar, and I played drums. And, of course, the organ player played the bass on his, on his pedals. Mm-hmm. And we had two jobs that year. I got a call from a, a local bar. It was a big, big place. Mm-hmm. They were just opening, and they wanted country music, and they wanted a band. This was on a Monday, and they wanted a band starting Thursday, and they wanted three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Do you know of a band? I said, oh, as a matter of fact, I do. I, I didn't know of any band. Uh, so I called these two guys. It's a you guys want to play Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights? So the first time we played together was that Thursday night. <laughs> and I think it was pretty awful. <laughs> but we played there for several months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and doing that in the symphony, was uh, my nights were pretty involved. Uh, and then they shut down. We, we later learned that it was a sting operation. Okay. They were they were using that club to to catch people selling drugs. <laughs> wow. Yeah. In fact, I remember one night I I had forgotten to take my insulin before uh, the gig. Mm-hmm. So at the first break, I went to the to the bar. Well, I thought she was the owner. So a young lady, I said, uh, I got to run home and get my insulin. And she says, why don't I run with you? 
Why don't I go with you? I thought, well, that's kind of strange. So I drove like crazy and, and came back. They got back within 15 minutes, took my insulin. And I, later I thought, she was trying to find out if I was taking drugs. <laughs> nice. I could have ended up in jail. <laughs> well, you were, but it was legal. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so that place shut down, and we got another job. It was in a small town about 40 miles away. We played there two nights a week uh-huh. the rest of the year. That was that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't want to play bars anymore after that. The smoke was just that's when you could still smoke in places. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I scrubbed my drum set for three weeks after that. <laughs> I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> and that was when I stopped playing drum set mm. that, that summer of '83. I the music that was coming out, and how, I, you know, I was not really interested in playing country music, but we we played it on that job. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, I I, I I want to focus on the marimba and timpani. I don't want to, I don't want to play more drum set. Yeah, it was fun, and I made a lot of money. Yeah, I made uh, more playing drum set that year and playing with a symphony than I made in my university salary. There it is. There it is. <laughs> and we'll get to part two next week with Court McLaren. Let me tell you, there are a lot of reasons to stay tuned for that portion of the interview. So we'll see you right back here. I don't really have a rave this week. But I will make one announcement that I have not made public yet, as well as a request. And I'm very excited to share this here for the first time. I am happy to announce that I was selected to present on the topic, using podcasts to improve your teaching, for the virtual version of the Percussive Arts Society International Convention, aka PASIC 2022, in November. I'm very excited to share what I have to say on this topic. I've been able to present this a few times in various formats, and I very much look forward to getting a chance to share this information with a larger audience. That being said, my request is that I would also love a chance to present this to you or people you know or your studio prior to my presentation at PASIC and afterwards as well, honestly. But... I would really love a chance to get to work this presentation out to make it an even better presentation than it already is. So if you'd like me to come and present to you or folks you know, please let me know. And I would love to get that set up. Again, thank you all so much for the support and love of the show that you've shown over the years and all the kind words and all the wonderful things. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to you hanging on for many more episodes and many more wonderful folks in the future. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always get every episode and the show notes at the homepage at 
PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes, as well as on SoundCloud. show is also on Spotify, so check it out there. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next week for part two with, again, my grad school mentor, Port McLaren. Until then.